All right, well, listen, we are continuing our study through uh, the book. What book are we studying? Who knows? Very good. The book of Acts. And does anybody know what the title of our series is? Devoted. Very good. Devoted is the overall title. And then the sort of subtitle is Ordinary People, Extraordinary God. And uh, today we find ourselves in Acts chapter, does anybody know this? Acts chapter 5. Very good. Pastor Daniel took us through Acts chapter 4 last week. And so we're in Acts chapter 5 today. And uh, in some ways, Acts chapter 5, uh, in several ways actually, Acts chapter 5 is, is a bit of a speed bump in the book of Acts. I mean, it's, it's a, in some ways, it's almost a pothole. There, there are some pretty heavy things here, and uh, we're going to come hard up against what is arguably the most difficult passage in the whole book. And uh, we're going to meet it head on. We're going to see what lessons we can take away uh, today. So let's pray and we'll get right into the text. Father in heaven, it is a beautiful place to be here with your people, your church, your Sabbath. And uh, Father, as we sang just a moment ago, it wasn't just a song that we sing because there's a nice melody, Father. It's the melody of our hearts. The Holy Spirit is welcome here. And Father, we are so thankful that the Spirit has invited us to be here, that we feel welcome. Uh, Father, today as we continue our study through this ancient history that in some ways is so modern, so contemporary, so today, uh, I ask that you will fill us with your Spirit, that you would give us clear minds and attentive minds, that you would give us a malleable, moldable will and spirit. So that as we learn and listen, those elements that apply specifically to our circumstance, our situation, you know us, Father, that you would make personal, individual application so that we can know that this has been more than the words of the pastor, more than the words of a man, but these are the words of the Spirit to us, to me, personally, individually. And so, Father, as as we turn our attention now to you and to your word. We want to be what the series title is. We want to be devoted. We come today as ordinary people, but we are believing in and trusting in and looking to an extraordinary God, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of Jesus. Be with us now as we study. In Jesus' name we ask it. Let everyone say, amen. All right, Acts chapter 5. Let's turn there. And uh, in order to sort of set the larger context for what's happening in Acts chapter 5, let's just say a a few things here sort of by way of setting the larger tone and the larger sort of structure of the book of Acts. The book of Acts was written by who? You tell me. Written by a man named Luke. He also wrote the Gospel of Luke that bears his name, Matthew, Mark, Luke. Uh, The book of Acts is the second of Luke's letters. He wrote them, both of them, to a man named Theophilus. And there is a lot of uh, different theories and questions and ideas as to why Paul wrote, or excuse me, Luke wrote to Theophilus. What was the purpose? And um, for our purposes here, Luke is recording the history, the early history of the Christian movement. Without the book of Acts, the New Testament would be grossly incomplete, because basically what we would have is 
the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and then it would just skip more or less right to the epistles. We would have no real context. Who is this guy Paul? Where is he from? Why is he writing? What's he doing in Philippi? What's he doing in Thessalonica? What's he doing in Rome? We would, we would know basically nothing. In many ways, the book of Acts is the skeleton, the historical skeleton upon which the New Testament hangs. Without the book of Acts, we would be groping in the dark, trying to figure out times, places, events, people. But with the book of Acts, it's like the glue that just brings the whole thing together. And the way that Luke has arranged the book of Acts, it's sort of divided into two halves, or they're not really halves, two parts. The first third of the book of Acts largely centers around Peter. Who does it center around everyone? Peter. Now, take a guess who the second two-thirds of the book of Acts mainly orbits around. Paul, right. So here in Acts chapter 5, we are, we are right in the middle. We are th- firmly uh, in, the, in the guts of the Peterine section of Acts. And uh, we're going to learn today about the first of Peter's two imprisonments. Up to this point, Pastor Jared and Pastor Daniel have preached through Acts chapters 1, 2, 3, and 4. So where are we at at this point in the story, in Luke's narrative? Okay, we could characterize the early church by five basic things. The way that Luke has crafted the narrative, the way that Luke has crafted the story, we basically have five major characteristics of the early church. If you can get... um, the first is that they're characterized by the apostles' doctrine and... The theme that comes up over and over again, especially in Acts 2 and 3 and 4, is the resurrection of Jesus. The resurrection, this once-in-history event, is the lens through which all of the apostles, and especially Peter, are seeing the world around them. Jesus was crucified, but he rose again from the dead. He rose again from the dead. He rose again from the dead. And it's that recurrent theme, that chorus that Peter just keeps saying over and over again, and the other apostles keep saying over and over again, that is going to eventually bring them into, is going to bring them into conflict with the religious leaders of the day. Because Peter is going to unambiguously and unashamedly charge the religious leaders of the day as being guilty and culpable for the death of the Messiah. And uh, as we're going to see in our passage here, this is going to get, it's going to get really conflicted. So first of all, the Apostles' Doctrine, centering in and around especially the resurrection. Number two, Luke paints the picture of a group of people that are just bathed in community, bathed in fellowship. They're in the temple together. They are house to house together. They are ministering together. They are preaching together. There's a lot of fellowship that's going on here. This is a praying community, as we're going to see here in Acts chapter 5, a praying community. We've already seen that in Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 4 as well. And something that we've already encountered up to this point, but is going to become really clear here in Acts 5, is this element of material generosity. That this wasn't just a movement of of words, it wasn't just a movement of, of speaking, but there were actual, tangible, financial things that were taking place in this community that communicated that they actually believed the things that they were saying with their mouths. And then finally, the movement is growing. As Luke paints the picture... The book of Acts, right from chapter 1, sort of starts kind of slow. But as soon as you get to Acts chapter 2, the day of Pentecost, it just, it gains this almost irresistible momentum. And as Luke paints the picture, people are being added. 3,000 on the day of Pentecost, 5,000 a little bit later after that, 3,000 a little bit later after that. And then Paul begins his expansive missionary journeys in and around Asia Minor and all the way up into southern Europe. And so, 
So Luke is sort of building steam, a bit like a flywheel. It's a little bit difficult to get a flywheel moving, but once that thing gets going, it's very difficult to stop. And so you can just imagine a sort of locomotive or a flywheel that's gaining momentum, gaining inertia, and Luke has painted this picture, these sort of five characteristics. Now Luke is writing with clearly an intention and a purpose, and that is, and I've written it here for you, that Luke is purposefully and skillfully describing the emergence of a new covenant community. Luke is the one who in his gospel, back in Luke chapter 12, actually records Jesus saying to the disciples, Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Right? Luke here anticipates a transition or a change, a shift from what was to what is becoming. And the book of Acts is the story of the development and the growth of this new covenant community. It's set against the backdrop of the prophecies of the Old Testament, specifically the prophecies of Daniel, where the probationary period that had been given to national Israel, to genealogical Israel, is drawing to its close. It's tapering. And a new thing is starting. And this new thing is the ecclesia the church, the called out ones. And Luke is painting this picture of community. He's painting this picture of fellowship. He's painting this picture of unity to show that there is a new covenant community that is rising and taking prominence. Now, let's go to Acts chapter 4. We're going to get into Acts chapter 5, but if you look at Acts chapter 5, you tell me, what's the first word of Acts chapter 5? Yeah, but. It's a conjunction. And it's not just any ordinary conjunction. It's a conjunction that communicates a transition, right? We're heading this direction, we're heading this direction, all seems to be well, but the illustration that I've used before, and it's as good as any, is uh, if you applied for a job and you filled out the application and you went in for the interview and you felt that you'd really hit the interview out of the park and you got a letter in the mail, say a week or two later, and they said, dear Mr. So-and-so, dear Mrs. So-and-so, thank you much for your interest in the job, thank you so much for your application, thank you so much for sending in your resume, but... Do you even need to read the rest of the letter? You don't, because in the English language, but serves not just as a conjunction, but as a conjunction that communicates a turn of direction. So in order to understand the big but of Acts chapter 5, verse 1, let's go back and read Acts chapter 4, beginning in verse 32. It says, Now the multitude of those who believed, of those who believed, were of how many hearts? One heart and how many souls? So there's unity. One heart, one soul. Neither did anyone say that any of the things that he possessed was his own, but they had all things in, what's the word there? They had everything in common. Now, keep your finger right here in Acts chapter 4, and just look at Acts chapter 2, and notice verse 44. Acts chapter 2, verse 44. It's just very close there, you'll find it. Acts chapter 2, verse 44. It says, now all who believed were together, and they had all things in, what? common, and notice that that commonality extended uh, to verse 45. They sold their possessions and goods, and they divided among them all as anyone had need. And so, in both Acts chapter 2 and in Acts chapter 4, Luke is making a point that there was not just a theological commonality. There was not just like saying, oh, they all got along. No, 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 no. There was a commonality that extended to such a degree and to such a significant depth that they began to sell their possessions to help those that were in need. Now, we're going to talk about that here in just a bit, what that does mean and what that doesn't mean. Um, But at this point, we have this idea of commonality. Now, I probably don't need to tell you that the word community comes from the word common, communis. 
It, it's the same word. A community is a group of people that have something in common. And so you have the, you know, if you're, a, say, a fisherman, you're into fishing, you're, there's the fishing community. Or if you're into music, you might be into the music community. Or if you're into football or footy, you say you're in the footy community. Whatever it might be, we're here in the Christ community, right? And so the thing that these people have in common is Christ. They have fellowship in common. They have the apostles' doctrine in common. But the outworking of that commonality is that, and this is a bit of a tough pill for us to swallow, they begin to have even their possessions in common, right? Hey, do you have a need? And people are selling and sort of distributing amongst one another so that nobody is lording it over another, that there is a basic equality among the early church. Verse 33, back to Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4, verse 33 says, And with great power the apostles gave witness to the, what's the word? The resurrection. Everything centers around the resurrection. The resurrection of the Lord Jesus and great grace was upon them all. Nor was there anyone among them who lacked. For all who were of possessors of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of the things that were sold and laid them at the apostles' feet. And they distributed to each as anyone had need. And Joseph, who was also named Barnabas by the apostles, um, which is translated a son of encouragement, a Levite of the country of Cyprus, having land, sold it and brought money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Okay, Luke is painting this almost utopian picture. Things are awesome. Everybody's getting along. Not only are they agreement on basic doctrine, not only are they affirming uh, the resurrection, not only are they all united by the Holy Spirit and prayer, but now they're united even by their, their financial means and their material wealth. And he gives an example. He says, Joseph, Joseph who was a Cyrene of Cyrene, he comes and he had lands, and he, he sells this. And uh, then we come to chapter 5, verse 1. Chapter 5, verse 1 says what? The word but occurs now. It's in this context that we encounter the but of Acts chapter 5, right? Things seem to be going really well, gaining this sort of irresistible momentum that I've already talked about. And then now, but, and we're going to hit a roadblock here. We're going to hit a speed bump here. We're going to hit a pothole here. And the pothole comes in the form of two people that have gone down infamously now in New Testament history, Ananias and Sapphira, okay? Ananias and Sapphira. Now, before we get to them, we do want to address one quick thing, and that is that there have been well-meaning, well-intentioned, but wrong-headed communities down through the ages that have sort of said, hey, if we're going to be like the apostolic church, if we're going to be like the New Testament church, we have to be essentially communist. We'll liquidate all of our mutual assets, and then we will distribute almost communistically among everybody getting an equal part. That is not what was happening in the early church. We know that because there are instances in the early church where people still owned their own houses and people were meeting in those houses. No, what's being said here is that there was a voluntary generosity that was springing forth naturally from an awareness that God had been supremely generous to the whole human race. Okay, so what I put up here that'll sort of help you with this is, this was not a coercive or external communism, but a caring and generous community. And if you're paying attention, you'll notice that the word communism and the word community both have the same root word, common. But where communism as a governmental system is something that's imposed externally by a governmental power, you will do this, and this is what's going to happen. A generous and caring community is something that springs not from the outside in, but from the inside out. These are people that are voluntarily relinquishing, surrendering, whatever their particular goods might have been. It does not mean an absolute liquidation of the 
some, the wholesale assets of the church. No, 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 on a redistribution along some sort of socialistic lines. That's not what's being described here. It's just saying that people were aware that there were needs in their community, and they gave of their own resources and assets to help the needs in that community. Can you say amen? I can tell you that this church, while not perfect, is like this. I, with my own eyes, have seen and witnessed this church rallying around the shared needs that this congregation has. Are we perfect? Do we get an A in that? Probably not. Maybe something like a B. But that basic idea of people being aware of needs, being aware of circumstances, and then rallying to them is something that I've seen right here in this community of faith. Well, now we're into Acts chapter 5, the, the butt of Acts chapter 5. We're going to encounter three basic scenes. If you sort of think of it as a play... The play of Acts chapter 5, there's three scenes. The first scene is the judgment. The second scene is the imprisonment and escape of Peter. And the third scene is the continuing growth and power of the message. And so let's go to Acts chapter 5. We're going to read the first scene through in its entirety, verse 1, right down to verse 11. This is the speed bump. This is the difficult one we talked about. But a certain man named Ananias with Sapphira, his wife, sold a possession. So far, so good. And he kept back part of the proceeds, his wife also being aware of it, and brought a certain part and laid it at the apostles' feet. Okay, we are introduced here. Luke unashamedly, unapologetically introduces hypocrisy, deception, and pretense into the early church. I meet people all the time that say, oh, if our church could only be like the early church. Oh, if our church could only be like the apostolic church. Well, let me tell you something. You need to reread the book of Acts. Because when I reread the book of Acts, there's a lot of power, there's a lot of spirit, there's a lot of commonality, there's a lot of fellowship there. But there's some hypocrisy in there. There's some infighting and, and misunderstanding and miscommunication and even some personality conflicts. And right here, Luke, being the faithful historian that he is, he records that there's pretense, there's hypocrisy, and there's deception even in the early church. This guy, Ananias, sells a possession, agrees to have given a certain percentage or amount, perhaps all of it, to the cause, but then he decides on second thought, I'm going to keep back a little bit for myself. But rather than announcing publicly and openly, hey, I'm going to keep some back, he puts on the pretense of actually having done what he originally said he would do. And so there in verse 3, Peter questions him about it. Well, Ananias comes in to lay the proceeds at the apostles' feet, and he says, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back part of the price of the land for yourself? While it remained, was it, your, was it not your own? And after it was sold, was it not in your own control? Why have you conceived this thing in your heart? Notice it doesn't say, why have you conceived this thing in your pocketbook? Because at the end of the day, this is not a money issue. It's not a money matter. It's not a pocketbook matter. It's not even a financial issue. It's a heart issue. Peter asked the question. It's the question that the Holy Spirit had laid on Peter's heart. Where did this idea come from? Why have you sold your heart so short? You haven't lied to men. You haven't lied to me about this, Peter seems to be saying. You have lied to God. Then Ananias, and here's the really tricky part, hearing these words, fell down and breathed his last. He has a a seemingly serendipitous cardiac arrest. So great fear came upon all those who heard these things. And the young men arose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. But what, what could have been chalked up to just a chance or just a serendipitous coincidence is about ready to become very uncoincidental. Now, it was about three hours later when his wife came in. Here comes Sapphira, not knowing what had happened. She's looking for her husband. And Peter says, oh, Sapphira, hey, so glad you came in. Got a question for you. Uh, Did you sell the land for so much? 
She says, yeah, yeah, for so much, you're right. That's the right amount. That's the amount that she and Ananias had agreed upon to lie about. Verse 9, then Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Look, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Then immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. And the young men came in, found her dead, carried her out, buried her by her husband. So great fear came upon all the church and all those who heard these things. So act one is, is a tough pill to swallow. Right? I mean, Luke has painted this picture, a new covenant community, fellowship, doctrine, resurrection, commonality of, of belief and of trust in God and of, of even financial resources. And then er, we hit the brakes with Acts chapter 5 where Ananias and Sapphira, in their pretense, in their hypocrisy, in their deception, are struck dead. Right? In, I mean, in a public, a very public way. This was, there's no subtlety to this. Peter questions Ananias. Shoo, he breathes his last breath. Peter questions Sapphira. She breathes her last breath. And there is a sense of foreboding, a sense of fear, and a sense of what just happened that comes upon the whole church. A sense of the solemnity of the moment. Now, while our modern minds might wrestle with the seeming fairness or unfairness of this, I want you to notice that Luke makes no such comment. Luke is not troubled as we might be in modern times with the fairness or unfairness of the acts that have taken place here. Luke records them just matter-of-factly. This is what happened. Some of our concerns and some of our questions apparently were not Luke's concerns and questions. He records this as a matter-of-fact thing that happened by virtue of the decisions that had been made. But for those of us that might be inclined to think, well, wait a minute, how, how is this right Is this the God of love? Is this the God of goodness? Is this the God that was shown in the face of Jesus? Jesus himself saying, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. I mean, can we imagine Jesus striking people dead? Wasn't he the one that said to the woman that was caught in adultery, neither do I condemn you? Wasn't he the one that invited the children onto his lap? How do we reconcile this seemingly incongruous picture of Acts chapter 5 and yet what we have come to regard as the truth about the God of Scripture in the New Testament? Well, there's a couple things to sort of bear in mind here. First of all, the thing that I've already mentioned is that Luke sees no particular problem. He sees no inconsistency. He feels no need to justify the actions that have taken place here. He just records them rather matter-of-factly. This is what happened. But for those that would say, but wait a minute, isn't this a kind of character violation? God, after all, in the sixth commandment of the Ten Commandments says, you shall not kill. Isn't this, in some sense, God violating the very commands that he himself has given? Well, the answer is no for a variety of reasons, and I'll just illustrate or just talk about two here. The first is, as you can see on the screen there, that there is a difference between murder and killing. Huge difference. By the way, all modern legal systems recognize this, right? I don't know how they run it in Australia, but in America we have murder in the first degree, second degree, third degree, and then you have what's called homicide. And then you have certain kinds of homicide, like vehicular homicide. The Bible actually makes these very same distinctions. For example, in the Old Testament, if you and I were working in the field and my axe head, as I was, say, chopping a tree, flew off and, and you know, killed somebody... Um, The Bible does not treat this at all the same way as if, and the phrase the Bible uses in the Old Testament, is if I lie in wait for someone to come, and I've got my axe now, very different kind of a situation, and someone's coming down the road, and I purposefully jump out and strike that person dead, right? The Bible speaks of this as sinning with a high hand, right? 
The first is still terrible. For an axe head to fly off and to kill somebody, you know, un, uh, uh, unfortunately, it's terrible. It's bad. But in that case, in the Old Testament, people fled to what was called a city of refuge, basically to give them a place of safety so that the family didn't come and try to take vengeance. Um, but in the other case, if I lied in wait or lay in wait and then killed somebody, well, in that case, then there was a much severer punishment that would be meted out to me. The Australian judicial system, as well as the American and all modern judicial systems, make the exact same kind of distinction. A distinction between different grades of murder or of killing. Now, it's important to recognize that most commentators believe, and I'm in harmony with this, that the command in Exodus chapter 20, the sixth commandment, does not forbid killing. It says you shall not murder. And fascinatingly, when Jesus quotes the Ten Commandments in the New Testament, he says you shall not murder. Murder is a stronger word. Murder is a, murder is a word that involves motive and it involves intentionality. It's not accidental. It's not you swerved, uh, you know, to a, you know, miss the kangaroo and, and you hit somebody in their car and they ended up dying. This is a very different kind of thing. So the first thing to recognize here is that there is a difference between murder and killing and the difference is in the motive. But the second thing, and even more importantly, is that God is the giver of all life. Does this make sense? God is the giver of all life. And so it is thus logically impossible for God to be a murderer. Right? If I lend you my car, my car, the car belongs to me. I own the car. I paid for the car. I, and let's just make it even more. Let's say I created the car. I built the car. And I lend it to you to use. It's not stealing when I ask for it back. Right? I lent you that car and now I'm asking it for it back. And particularly if I saw you misusing or abusing or mistreating the car that I had graciously, kindly lent to you, not only would it not be inappropriate for me to ask for it back, it, it would be very appropriate and, and situationally contextual for me to say, hey, I need my car back. I didn't give it to you for that purpose. I didn't give it for you to, tr to you for you to treat it like that. I want my own car back. No one would accuse me of stealing. They would say, he is taking back what was rightfully his all along. God, as the giver of life, is full well within his divine right to take back what he has lent to us at any moment. Life is a privilege, not a right. You get that, everyone? It's a privilege. God is under no obligation to you. God is under no... Uh, uh, he, there's no court that would hold him accountable. Oh, he, he took something from me that he had originally given. No. Now, he doesn't. It's not his character to give and to take away and to be capricious or arbitrary. No, 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 no. That's not God's style. So in this particular instance, it raises the question, why did God withdraw the life from Ananias and Sapphira at this time and in this way? And the answer is as plain as the noonday sun. In the context of the story, the early church is growing. There's a momentum. There's an inertia. But frankly... The religious leaders have seen this movie before. They've seen this movie many times before. In fact, stay right there in Acts chapter 5 and just, just go to the end of Acts chapter 5 and look at this. When Gamaliel speaks up, we're going to encounter Gamaliel, Gamaliel a little bit later. He's a Pharisee, but he's going to speak up and uh, notice what he says in verse 36. Acts chapter 5 verse 36. He says, for some time ago, Thutis, Thutis? Thutis. We don't know who this guy is. For some time ago, Thutis rose up claiming to be somebody. A number of men, about 400, 
joined him. He was slain, and all who obeyed him were scattered, and it came to nothing. Verse 37. And after this guy, Judas of Galilee rose up in the days of the census and drew away many people after him. He also perished, and all who obeyed him were dispersed. Okay. The religious leaders have seen this movie before, and they've been watching this movie since the Maccabean period, about 200 years before. There is a growing sense of frustration, anger, discontent among the Jewish nation toward, in this case, Rome and toward all of their captors. And so there was always this sort of sense, this pregnant anticipatory sense that a Messiah figure is going to come, and a Messiah figure is going to come, and he's going to smash the Romans, he's going to get back the land that was rightfully theirs, he's going to place these pagan, uncircumcised, pork-eating peoples under the foot of God's chosen people, Israel, and he's going to do it with strength, he's going to do it with swords, he's going to do it with power, and he's going to do it with a Messiah figure. Well, these Messiah figures have come and gone. There have been dozens of purported and alleged Messiahs, and Gamaliel here mentions too. Thutis came about, and he had some 400 followers, but that all came to nothing. And then Judas came about, and he had some followers, but he also was killed, and it came to nothing. So at this point in the story, we're only in Acts chapter 5. The New Testament church is just another messianic movement. It's just the latest uprising. It's just the latest protest against Rome. There's really nothing apart from the resurrection, which the vast majority of people either denied or didn't know about anyway, to set it apart. And so there's really no sense that anything special is going on here. And the danger is that this could then cause people with the wrong motives and the wrong ambitions to align themselves with what they assumed was a nationalistic, patriotic movement to get rid of Rome. It would have invited hypocrisy, it would have invited worldly ambition, it would have invited all kinds of different motives that are totally out of harmony with God's motive of a new covenant community built on love, selflessness, kindness, and generosity. And so the moment that this this rears its head, that it just begins to look like every other messianic movement, which at the end of the day was about me and mine and us and ours, Ananias and Sapphira, with their pretense, with their deception, with their hypocrisy, God takes back what he had lent to them. And apparently, he takes it back knowing full well that if he would have allowed them to continue, two things would have happened. Number one, Ananias and Sapphira would not have changed their course of action. This was a terminal choice that they made. And you say, how do you know that? Well, we don't know that. Luke doesn't know that, but God knows that. God sees exactly who and where Ananias and Sapphira were at in their experience. That's number one. But number two... God here effectively prevents this early church from becoming just another messianic movement or uprising. There's a sense of fear. There's a sense of solemnity. There's a sense of what just happened here going on in the community. Now you say, well, David, how can you be so sure? How do we know that God certainly knew that this was a terminal choice for Ananias and Sapphira? That is to say that if another 10 years or 10 months or 20 years had been afforded them that they might have changed their mind, they might have repented, they might have, you know, reconsidered. Well, we know that because the New Testament is filled with passages that clearly communicate that God is interested not in condemnation, not in damnation. He's interested in the salvation of human beings. Can you say amen to that? Well-known passages like John chapter 3, verse 16, for God so loved the world, that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. God here shows he has an interest in saving as many as possible, including but not limited to the entire world. Passages like 2 Peter chapter 3 verse 9, that God is not willing that any should what? 
perish, but that all should come to repentance. This is the same God that retracted, that, that took back from Ananias and Sapphira what he had lent them. We don't know how old they were. Maybe they were 50. Maybe they were 60. Maybe they were 40. We don't know. But for those 40, 50, or 60 years that he lent the, his life to them, he could see that that life, like my car, was being abused, and he simply took back what was his all along. Romans chapter 8, verses 31 and 32 says, if God is for us, who can be against us? God's not against us. God is not against Ananias and Sapphira. No, he's for them, right? Look at what it goes on to say. If God did not spare his own son, but freely delivered him up for us all, how will he not with him also freely give us all things? And so the composite picture that emerges from both the Old and the New Testaments is that, say those first three words with me there if you would, that God is love. That being the case, therefore he always does the right thing, the loving thing. This is why Luke and Peter have no particular problem. With, they spend no time at all justifying the seeming unfairness of what's taken place here. None at all. They are not bothered by our modern concerns about the fairness. of. They know good and well. If God sent his own son to die on Calvary's hill so that absolutely anyone who would have a glimmer of repentance would, would experience salvation, then it must be the case that these two had placed themselves outside of the purview even of the reach of God. Not that God had turned his back on them, but that they had terminally and irreparably turned their back on God. And so God, in an act of what can only be described as repossession, takes back what was his all along. He takes back Ananias' life, and he takes back Sapphira's life. Now, as we mentioned here, when Peter raises the accusation, when he raises the question against Ananias, he doesn't say, why did you, purport, why did you choose to do this in your pocketbook? Peter knows what you and I know, and that is that God does not want your money. He wants your heart. Can somebody say amen to that? Of course. Look at this. I love this statement here from N.T. Wright, well-known New Testament theologian and scholar. He says, what you do with money and possessions declares, how does it declare? Loudly what sort of a community you are. And the statement made by the early church's practice was clear and definite. No wonder they were able to give such powerful testimony to the resurrection of Jesus. I love what Wright is saying here. The way that a community spends its money lets you know what kind of community it is. How does the fishing community spend its money? How does the footy community spend its money? How does the whatever music community spend its money, right? Is there some unifying principle by which you can sort of ascertain how they spend their money, their times, and their time and their resources? I don't know if it's the case here, probably not so much in Australia, but in the United States of America, Seventh-day Adventist ministers and Seventh-day Adventists in general are audited with a tremendous frequency over the general population, right? Seventh-day Adventist ministers are audited something like five or ten times more frequently than the general populace. The reason, why do you think the reason might be? Why are all these Seventh-day Adventist pastors getting audited? Why are all these Seventh-day Adventists getting audited? Well, let me tell you why. Because they're giving away so much of their money. Because it doesn't, how can it make sense to, to be voluntarily giving away 10, 20, 30, and in some cases 50% or more of your money? How can that be? That, that smells fishy. That smells, that something doesn't smell quite right there. And so a number of my own friends, I myself never got audited, but I was fully prepared for it to happen. And my tax man told me there's a very good chance you will be audited. 
It's entirely possible. I had two Seventh-day Adventist friends that were audited, and they would sit down and they went line by line, itemization by itemization. Why would you give this, and why did you do this? Because it's very difficult to conceive in a secular mindset why somebody would voluntarily surrender not less than 10% of their income to a cause, right? And in many cases, it's 20% or 30% or more. Why would somebody do that, right? I love what Wright says here. The way that a community spends its money tells you a lot about that community, And so I'm going to say this. God wants your heart, not your money. Can somebody say amen to that? But I'm going to say this just as quickly, and that is that money is a sure index of the heart. Right? In other words, it doesn't get anybody off the hook to say, oh, God's not interested in my money. He's interested in my heart. True enough. True enough. But didn't Jesus himself say that where your treasure is, does anybody know this? Where your treasure is, what's also there? Your heart is there. So if somebody says to me, oh, God's not interested in my money, and I say, are you returning a faithful tithe? And they say, no, because God's not interested in my money. I say, you're right. God's work is going to go forward with or without your money. God's work is going to go forward. God's church is going to grow with or without your money. The question is is whether you're going to grow. The question is whether you, you, yourself, God is not interested in securing your finances. What God is interested in is in securing your heart. And I like to tell people that 90% or 80% or 70% with God's blessing goes much further than 100% without it. You! What do you think of that, church? All right. So, to close this part of the story, biblical giving is less about duty and more about privilege and joy. Right? Uh, it, it, it's actually a weird thing to be a Seventh-day Adventist minister in Australia. One of my least favorite things about it is that I don't get the privilege, and yes, I said that exactly right, I don't get the privilege of returning my tithe. The way that the conference has concocted their system, and they explained it to me, and I guess it's sufficiently rational for them, and I'll go along with it, is that they just extract my tithe so that the government gets less and less money, gets their hands on it. I think that's the, the purported thing. I don't like it. Straight up, I told them, I, don't li- I hate that. I like the idea that money comes to me and the first and happiest and most important check that I write is the check to the furtherance of the work of God in the world. That requires faith, it requires intentionality, it requires purpose, and it requires worship. It's an act of worship. And so here, yes, I still return a faithful tithe, but it's, it's done for me, and so whatever. But I, offering is a different story. Offering is a different story. All right, God takes us and our decisions seriously. Really, that's the takeaway from the story of Ananias and Sapphira, that God takes you seriously. And would you want it any other way? God says, oh, Ananias, that's a decision you're making. I hear that decision. I honor that decision. And that decision, like all decision, has consequences. I love the fact that God takes us seriously. He takes our decisions seriously. He takes us seriously. He's not a patronizing puppeteer that sort of pretend. No. They made a decision, and God said, okay, that's your decision. Decisions have consequences. All right, now look at the next one here. Let's look at the next act in the drama. And uh, predictably, the church is growing. Things are happening. Great things are happening. Verse 12. And through the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were done among the people, and they were all with one accord. There's that unity in Solomon's porch. Yet none of the rest dared join them, and the people esteemed them highly. In fact, this reaches such a uh, fever pitch that people are being healed, and they're being healed in rather unusual ways, just, just by people walking by, and, and the shadow of Peter 
going across a sick person or an otherwise infirmed person is being healed. It's really a miraculous and singular thing that's happening here. And verse 14 says, the believers were increasingly added to the Lord. Well, not surprisingly, that becomes a threat to the religious establishment. Right? Now, this is slowly sort of emerging in the minds of the religious leaders. It's not just any other ordinary messianic uprising or messianic movement. This isn't just like the situation with Thutis or the situation with Judas of Galilee. No, this is a different kind of thing. There's a momentum here. There's a growth here. There's a, a, an energy here, and it's growing, and there's the sense that we need to shut this down, and that's exactly what happens. That's Acts 2, or that's Act 2. Verse 17 says, The high priest rose up with all that were with him, which were of the sect of the Sadducees, and they were filled with anger, and they laid their hands on the apostles, and they put them in prison. We've got to shut the, We've got to slow this down. This thing's getting out of hand. It's like a wildfire. But at night an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out. And what follows here, frankly, is humorous. It's, it's, you just read this story, and Luke, I think, clearly is communicating it with a sense of humor. Let me just show you a few of those little humorous parts. It says, um, but at night an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, go stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. Go preach the life of Jesus. Verse 21, and when they had heard that, they entered the temple early in the morning. So they get the picture here. This is awesome. They rise early. They're in the temple early in the morning. But the high priest and those who came... Uh, those with him came and called the council together and with all the elders of the children of Israel... Uh, and sent to the prison to have them brought. Okay, so they're coming in and say, hey, bring the prisoners. Right now, unbeknownst to them, they've been preaching for the last hour and a half in the temple. Verse 22, but when the officers came, they did not find them in the prison, and they returned and reported, saying, I love this, indeed, we have found the prison shut securely, and the guards were standing outside before the doors. But when we opened them, we found no one inside. I just love it. There's just such a, there's just such a pregnancy with the way that Luke writes here. It's quite funny. We didn't, there was nobody in there. Now, when the high priest, the captain of the temple, and the chief priest heard these things, they wondered what the outcome would be. So you can just sit them sort of thinking about it. And then, you know, if you can just imagine it as a movie and, and the camera cuts. Verse 25, look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and they're teaching the people. Then the captain went out with the officers and brought them. And I like this, without violence. In other words, there was no protest. Why would you protest? If the angel can let you out of prison last night, he'll let you out tonight too. So they were just happy to go. Oh, the, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. We'll come. We'll happily come. They feared the people lest they should be stoned. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council. And, they said to the high, and the high priest said to them, and I love this, did we not strictly command you not to teach in his name? No question about like, how did you get out? What's going on here? The, no, no, just haven't we been over this ground before? And look, you have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine and you intend, to, and the doctrine was the doctrine of the resurrection. You intend to bring this man's blood on us. You're accusing us. Notice that they can't even say the name of Jesus. They say, this man. They don't even want to say the name. But Peter's not afraid to say the name. But Peter and the other apostles said, man, we've thought this through. And it makes sense to us that we should obey God rather than man. The God of our fathers raised up, what's the name? Jesus. Now this next stuff is strong medicine here. Whom you murdered. That gets back to our issue of the difference between murder and killing. See, Peter's very intentional here. God didn't murder Ananias and Sapphira. But Peter is crystal clear that the religious leaders of the day had murdered the Son of God. Whom you murdered by hanging on a tree. Him God has exalted to his right hand to be a prince and a savior to give repentance to Israel and the forgiveness of sins. And we are his witnesses to these things. And so also was the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those that obey him. 
I mean, what you, really, what are you going to say? You almost feel kind of sorry for the religious leaders of the day here because they are waging an unwinnable war, right? It's, it's a war against a bunch of uneducated, unsophisticated fishermen who just happen to have God on their side. You know, it's just like you almost feel a sort of pity for them. Like, man, just get off the losing team, join the winning team, and the whole story will change. I love the way that N.T. Wright says this. Look at this. This is a great one. This is the power of the preaching of the resurrection to religious despots, to religious tyrants, to political despots and political tyrants. They lose all their power. If all they can do is threaten your life and you're preaching a resurrection, they have no power. Look at this. But the resurrection was always a radical, dangerous doctrine, an attack on the status quo and a threat to the existing power structures. Resurrection, you see, says N.T. Wright, is the belief which declares that the living God is going to put everything right once and for all and is going, as we saw in the previous chapter, Acts chapter 3 and 4, to restore all things, just as the man in Acts chapter 3 had been healed. To turn the world right way up at last, and those who are in power within the world the way, as the way, uh, within the world the way it is, are quite right to suspect that if God suddenly does such a drastic thing, they, the religious leaders, the political leaders, to put it mildly, cannot guarantee that they will end up in power in the new world that God is going to make. Don't you love that? The moment, see, see, the resurrection is calculated to undermine religious and political tyranny because what can you do? You're going to throw me in prison? Okay, I'll be happy to spend my life in prison. Or an angel might come let me out. What are you going to do, kill me? Well, I'm preaching the resurrection of Jesus. I'm preaching that he raised and so we will all be raised. And instantly that grip, that tyrannical terrible, manipulative grip that religious and political tyranny can have on human beings is powerless. Absolutely powerless. And so Peter says, quite rationally, you know, we've given this a little bit of thought, dudes, and it occurs to us that given the fact that we're preaching the resurrection of the dead and that we think we have God on our side, we should probably obey him rather than you. So yes, you did strictly command us, but we are amenable to a higher authority, and that authority is God. They could arrest the men, but they could not arrest the message. The message was going forward. And that's really the story of the book of Acts. Over and over again, you sort of hit this pitfall. You hit this, this uh, um, speed bump. You hit this wall. You hit this obstacle. But the message just, just tumbles over. Like, a, like water cascading down a ravine. It overcomes the boulders. It overcomes the tree. It just, it's, it's absolutely irresistible. Now, the third and final act in the sort of drama here is that so much momentum is being gained that they say, hey, look, we're just going to have to go to drastic measures. These people are incorrigible. They will not listen to us. They can't be threatened. We'll just kill them. Well, they had done this before. This is exactly what they had done with Messiah. We'll just kill him and all will be well. And so it says in verse 33, when they heard Peter's reasoning, it says they were furious. And that's a very soft word. The Greek literally means they were cut with a saw. It's a Greek idiom for saying they were pierced. They were, they were just, they were just, you know, steam is coming out of their ears. Ah! How can you not? Because they're accustomed to people. Dictators hate it when people resist them. Tyrants hate it when people resist them. And here, these dictatorial religious tyrants are being resisted by a bunch of nobodies, and they just hate it. So what are you going to do? They plotted to kill them. But like we've already said, 
You can arrest the, mess, the men, but you can't arrest the message. And you can say this. You could kill the men, but you can't kill the message. The message is going forward, the message of a crucified and risen Savior. So in the midst of this, this cacophony of anger and consternation, there is one wise voice that speaks up. And it sort of alerts us to the fact that even amongst the priests and the Pharisees, there was some wisdom, some intelligence, and some sympathy for this new covenant community. We know that because in a few chapters, it's going to say that many of the priests actually become obedient to the faith. This guy's name is Gamaliel. He speaks up. Gamaliel, a man, a teacher of the law, held in respect by all the people, commanded them to put the apostles aside. Just let these guys outside for a second. I got something I want to say. And he said to them, men of Israel, you better pay attention to what you're about to do. That's my translation. Pay attention to what you're considering doing with regard to these men because, and then he tells the story of Thutis, who rose up, 400 followers, but he was gone. Then Judas of Galilee, who rose up, but he was slain, and the whole thing came to an end. Verse 38, and now I got, I got a word for, of wisdom for you guys. Keep away from these men. Leave them alone. My advice is to leave them alone. For if this plan or if this work is of men, it will come to nothing. But if it is of God, you can't overthrow it, lest you be found even to be fighting against God. Look at this. What were they going to say to that? Verse 40, and they, no doubt reluctantly, agreed with him. And when they had called for the apostles and beaten them for good measure... They commanded that they should not speak anymore in the name of Jesus. Of course, we've seen that movie before, and we know how it turns out. They let them go, but look at this. So they departed from the presence of the council, thinking that maybe they would be quieted, at least for a time, because of the beating. But in fact, quite the opposite had happened. They were rejoicing that they were counted worthy to be beaten and to suffer shame for his name. Verse 42, Luke ends exactly where he started. Or Luke ends here exactly where he'd ended uh, Acts chapter 4 with a momentum, with, an, with a, a sense that this is going forward. And daily in the temple and in every house, there's your small groups, by the way, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. Can somebody say amen? Okay, so check it out. Here it is. The five things that we mentioned, the apostles' doctrine, they were glued to the resurrection and to the apostles' doctrine. They were glued to one another in fellowship. Not just fellowship with one another, but especially fellowship with the Holy Spirit. Here, they're not only in the temple, they're not only in the synagogues, they're in house to house, which is part of the reason that Jared and myself and Pastor Daniel are passionate about not just a church with small groups, but a church of small groups. A church that is composed of communities of people and one grand community of people who are united together. A kind, generous community. There's prayer in this community. I want to thank Lance and Leon and the others in this church that are passionate about prayer. We need to see the prayer ministry in this church grow. Can somebody say amen to that? The early church was a praying movement. It was a praying community. And we need to be a praying movement and a praying community. Material generosity. We need more of that, frankly. In this church, we're good. I would give us a C+. But there's a whole lot more room for growth here in material generosity and in growth. I'm not worried about it. I'm not a pastor that stresses about that. I don't know which of you pay tithe and, or return tithe. You don't pay tithe, by the way. You pay your bills, but you return tithe because it was never yours anyway. I don't know which of you returns tithe and don't returns tithe. And frankly, I don't care. I could go look. I could go ask Darren, pull up the list. But at the end of the day, it's not about your pocketbook. It's about your heart. And what I want to try and do and what Jared wants to try and do and what, what Daniel wants to try and do and what the leaders here want to do, what we all want to do is have God get our heart. Because when God gets our heart, it's a guarantee he has our checkbook. You, I just love it when you get quiet like that. I love it. <laughs> Material generosity. Absolutely. I want to put my money where my mouth is. 
and grow through the movement's attractiveness. Luke, you don't see these radical evangelistic pushes. You see people just naturally becoming members of a movement because something's happening, right? It's not artificial. It's not contrived. The picture that Luke paints in Acts chapter 5 is that preaching, healing, and a generous community are an almost irresistible combination. I want to say that again. Preaching, healing, and has God given this church a message of healing and of restoration physically? Absolutely. The health message is a beautiful thing. And by the way, miraculous healings still take place. I've seen it with my own eyes. But even more important than the occasional miraculous healing, I was just visiting with somebody this week and said, hey, look, we live on a broken planet with broken bodies. And our bodies get diseases and strokes and heart attacks and cancers and all kinds of blood illnesses and et cetera, et cetera. The main thing that God is saving us from is not physical disease to a physical body. He's saving us from the cancer of sin, right? And I said, think about Lazarus. Lazarus was raised from the dead in John chapter 11, but he had, he had to die again. You never think about it that way, do you? This guy had to die twice, right? The real thing that God is doing is he wants us to be healthy people physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually, relationally. And so when you have a healthy community that's preaching the gospel and also happens to be generous with their time, talents, and treasury, that's an almost irresistible combination. I want to I close with this. I thought you'd find this interesting. The early church, not just the first century church, but the second, third, and fourth century churches grew very rapidly. In fact, even before the conversion of Constantine in A.D. 312, the church was growing very rapidly. Um, but it wasn't growing among the cultural elite. Okay, it wasn't. It was growing amongst the poor people. In fact, Celsus, who was a second century Greek philosopher and a critic of Christianity, hated Christianity. He wrote this in the middle of the second century. He said, far from us, say the Christians, be any man possessed of any culture of wisdom or judgment. Their aim is to convince only worthless and contemptible people, idiots, slaves, and poor women. Notice the grouping there. Idiots, slaves, contemptible people, women, children. These are the only ones who they manage to turn into believers. And you know what's fascinating about Celsus' charge? It's largely accurate. The church in the second and third centuries was, was growing mostly among the contemptible in society. And it's because they were meeting a felt need. In fact, I'll tell you a very interesting thing. One of the ministries of the second and third century churches is quite an interesting one. Like modern times, in ancient times, the religious peoples were very superstitious about the dead, dead people. And, you know, even today, we want, we want to take our dead, we want to put them in nice little beds, with, and then we put them in the ground, we put a little stone. We're very, you know, frankly, if, if I could choose right now the way that when I die, just go dump me in the ocean. When I die, just put me in the woods. I don't want all that pomp and circumstance. But, you know, the, for the living, there's a lot of sort of superstition, so we put them in a little basket, and we stick them in the ground, and we go through all this, you know, paraphernalia. Okay. In ancient times, as in modern times, if you could not afford a proper burial, it was really considered a dishonor to the, to the deceased. And some people who couldn't afford it, they would just throw the bodies in the woods or in the dump or whatever. And you know what one of the most successful ministries of the early Christian church in the second and third centuries was? They provided money to provide proper burials for the poor, especially people who were not of their faith. 
So they would just find people. Oh, you had a brother that passed away, a husband that passed away, a daughter that passed away, whatever. They would provide money so a proper burial service could be done. And when they did that, it endeared them to the community. Right? So what Celsus is saying here is, these people, they convert none of the legislators. They convert none of the Senate. They convert none of the entrepreneurs. They're converting none of the big people. They're only converting these worthless, poor, contemptible, and women. And the truth is, that was largely correct. The church was growing amongst those who felt the need for a better world. Right? In fact, Emperor Julian... The 4th century Roman emperor was up to, he had it up to here with these stupid, contemptible, poor Christians. And notice what he said, he wrote. Atheism, that's what they called Christianity. They called Christianity atheism because the Christians denied the, the regional gods. They denied that uh, Caesar was Pontificus Maximus, and so they were regarded as atheists. They had no gods. Right? Funny, funny to think about it. That's what they were called. Christianity has been specially advanced through the loving service rendered to who? To strangers, and through their care for the, there it is, burial of the dead. And that, look at what Julian says. It is a scandal that there is not one single Jew who is a beggar, and that the godless Galileans, that's the Christians, notice he calls them godless again, they're atheists. The godless Galileans care not only for their own poor, but who else are they caring for? They care for our poor as well. He says, look, while those who belong to us, Roman citizens, Look to us in vain for the help that we should render them. This is what Ellen White says when she's talking about Christian character perfection. The completeness of the Christian character. A lot of people get all fuddy-duddied about perfection and sinlessness. Let me tell you, this is the bottom line, what you're going to read right here. The completeness of Christian character is attained when? When the impulse to help and bless others springs constantly from within. So let me say this to you. For those of you that are really fastidious and worried about perfectionism and the last generation and the 144,000 and all of that, let me tell you, the last generation will be far more about what they are doing than what they aren't doing. We spend far too much time thinking about what we won't be doing. We should be spending almost all of our time thinking about what we will be doing. And what we will be doing, she says, you have attained Christian character perfection. Right? That's what she's saying. Completeness of Christian character happens when that, when that impulse to help and to bless others is springing constantly from inside of you. That's what Christian character perfection looks like. It doesn't look like a robotic stopping of certain behaviors. It looks like a natural, organic outflowing of generosity, kindness, caring. It looks like Acts chapter 5. Now you've got your connect cards there in your hands. Hopefully you've got them. I'm going to have my uh, guys stand up and hand these out if you don't. I want to make a very special appeal on our Connect card today. So hopefully you've all got them. If you don't have one, raise your hands. Our deacons will put one in your hand. Very simple. By the way, if you're a member here, you do not have to fill out every single detail. Just put your name in there. If we know how to get a hold of you, just stick your name in there. Hey, Campbell, we got Paul over here on the far left needs one. Way over there. Campbell, you see him over there? Got it. Thanks, buddy. So if, if you're a visitor or a, you're just coming back for the first or second time, please put your data, data in there. But for those of you that have been going here since before I have, just write your name in. We know how to get a hold of you. This is the thing. This is the appeal I want to make today. Look at this. On the right side, it says, My step today is, God, I give you my four things. Time, treasure, talents, 
and trust. Okay, I want you to think about each one of those as you mark it. When you say, God, I give you my time, what does that mean? Well, it means a lot of things. It means what you're doing today. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. It means daily committing some portion of your day to turn your life over to God, to devote yourself to God. Giving your time to God means spending time in ministry. I'm so thrilled with Lyndon and, and his Backyard Blitz ministry and some of the other ministries that are taking place in this church, as I've already mentioned, Lance and Leon and their prayer ministry. God is going to give you a ministry. God is going to give every... The goal for this church, for myself and Jared, listen to this carefully, and Daniel, is that every single member here has a ministry. Amen? And so you say, man, I want to give my time to God. It doesn't mean you're going to become a monk and go off and live in the woods and spend all your time in meditating and singing Gregorian chants. That's not at all what it means. It means that you're turning your time over to God. Your treasure, now this is a big one. I want to attach a very specific thing to this. I want to remind you that you don't pay tithe, you return tithe. You return it. It doesn't belong to you. And I'm just going to shoot straight with you here. If you're not returning a faithful tithe, your heart is not in the right place. And I'm just going to say that as plain as can be, you can get upset, you can get upset all you want, but I'd, I'm going to say with Peter today, I'd rather obey God than man, okay? If you are not returning a faithful tithe on your gross income, your heart is not in the right place. And you can get upset about that and get mad about that, you come talk to me, and I'll be happy to sit down and, and look at Scripture and see what Scripture has to say about that. I want to appeal to you with generosity, with joy, and with happiness in your heart to claim the promise today that 90% with God's blessing 80% with God's blessing, whatever the Spirit of God lays on your heart, but at least the 90%. 90% with God's blessing goes much further than 100% without His blessing. The talents one, there's a big one there. We need small group leaders, we need small group participants, we need ministry leaders, we need ministry participants, and we want to create a culture of ministry, a culture of community in this church. Not pretending like it doesn't already exist. It does. Praise God. There's a great ministries, great communities that are already happening in this church long before Daniel, Jared, or myself ever arrived. But we want to try to systematize it. Make it systematize. You know, everybody's plugged in and it's easy. And especially when visitors are coming, you say, man, I want to pour my talents into the church. Not just my Sabbath morning backside on a chair. I want to put my talents into this community. Check it. And last but not least, man, I'm going to ask you above all else to put your trust in Messiah. When you're giving your talents to him, that's trusting him. When you're giving your treasury to him, when you say, I'm going to commit to that 10%, I'm going to commit to that 15%, I'm going to commit to that 20%, that's putting your trust in God. And one of these days, it's not going to happen today, it's not going to happen tomorrow, but according to prophecy, one of these days, it's going to happen where you and I could be brought to the very place where we have to say, with Peter, two religious and political tyrants, hey, we've thought about this, and we would rather obey God than man. We've made up our mind. The book of Revelation depicts that that's exactly the direction where things are headed, and I'll tell you, if we don't learn to trust Him now, we won't be able to trust Him then. And so let's put our trust in God. And you see the other things over there you can mark, receiving Bible studies, getting baptized, leading a small group, anything else that you think we can be doing to help you, mark it on the back. I'm pleading with you today on behalf of myself, Pastor Jared, Pastor Daniel, but especially on behalf of Jesus, for all of us to give your time to God, to give your treasury to God, to give your talents to God, and to put your trust in the God of Jesus. Amen? All right, I'm going to invite the singers to come up. We'll close with a brief prayer as they come up. Father in heaven, today we give you time, talents, trust, and our treasury.
Today we say with Peter, we ought to obey God rather than men. And today we say we want to be a part of a generous, preaching, healing community, an irresistible combination that will become a force for good in this Gold Coast community. Make us people of change, people of momentum, people of the church, people of Scripture. And this is our prayer in Jesus' name. Let everyone say, Amen.